Chapter 14 They headed westward, stopping to camp as they went, catching fresh fish so as to keep their supply of smoked fish for later. Gunhild felt at home on the water now, and the motions of sailing came easily to her. She always stayed within sight of land, however. Sometimes she passed islands that marked the edge of the Wadden Sea, but she always kept to the left of them, seeing no reason to sail into the North Sea. For now they only needed to follow the coastline, though she knew that must change eventually. The water jugs worked well enough, as Yadith had predicted. The pottery did absorb some of the water, and the jugs darkened and were moist to the touch when they were full. Nevertheless, they held up, and the girls were able to keep at least a week's supply of fresh water at hand. They saw a house on the second day, and then houses and farms became more frequent as they continued. There were only a few, but after weeks of not seeing another person, the farms came as a surprise. Gunhild steered the boat well away from them, but the knowledge that they were now near human habitation weighed on her. Part of her wanted to go meet other people, but far away from Denmark as she was, they would not be her people. Then, on the fifth day sailing west, the mast broke. Gunhild was tacking, sailing at a zigzag to the wind, and as she turned the boat to angle back the other way, there was a groaning noise, and the mast snapped and fell. The sail and all the ropes came down with it, and the tangled mess bobbed on top of the water. Gunhild swore, then swore again, and stamped her foot on the bottom of the boat. We can repair it, said Yadith optimistically. Not without tools, said Gunhild. We'll need a brand new mast. We could do it if we had tools, but... She left the rest unsaid. The mast had broken near the base, though it was still partially attached, and the sail now dragged in the water, making it almost impossible to row. Gunhild pulled the broken base of the mast free from the slot that held it, then started untying the rope so that the mast and the sail could be dragged onto the boat. She took apart the yard, the pole that ran across the top of the mast, so that everything could be bundled up. The whole time she muttered furiously under her breath. Yadith didn't know what to do, and didn't want to get in the way. When the mast, yard, and the bunched-up sail were all sitting tied up across the boat, the two girls took their places at the oars. "'Are we rowing for shore?' asked Yadith. "'I was going to,' said Gunhild, "'but then I realized there's nothing we can do on shore. "'We can't fix the mast there. "'We might as well keep rowing.' "'Do you think we can row all the way to England?' asked Yadith. "'I don't know, do I?' snapped Gunhild. "'I didn't even know what I was doing before the stupid mast broke.' They continued to row until Gunhild's shoulders knotted up, and she pushed away the oars in frustration. Yadith hadn't spoken, but when Gunhild stopped, she stopped too. Even with practice, she was not a skilled rower, and she wasn't quite big enough to fit the boat yet. She was only twelve, and a year of work on Gunhild's family farm had made her more scrawny than muscular. They sat still, listening to the wind, and felt the boat rocking gently beneath them. Then Yadith raised her head and looked around, and squinted at the horizon. "'Do you hear something?' she asked. Gunhild tilted her head, raising an ear to the distance. "'What am I listening for?' she asked. "'Tapping,' said Yadith. "'Like metal.' Gunhild continued to listen, but couldn't hear anything. "'Wait for the wind to calm,' said Yadith. "'It's coming from ahead.' She pointed to a distant shore further to the west. Gunhild waited, and then suddenly heard it. A faint tink-tink-tink sound barely audible over the roar of the sea. "'What do you think it is?' asked Yadith. "'I don't know,' said Gunhild. "'But if it's a person making the sound, "'then at least it might be someone who can help fix the mast.' 
Should we go find out? Yadith looked apprehensive. It's that, or we row across the North Sea with no sail. We're going to have to meet people eventually. I know, said Yadith. Let's go. As they continued rowing, the sound grew louder, but stopped from time to time. Gunhild was about to point out that she couldn't see where the sound might be coming from when Yadith stood halfway up in the boat and cupped her hands around her eyes to see better. It's some buildings, houses, she said. The shoreline ahead of them was low and flat, without many trees. The houses were barely visible in the distance. They kept rowing, but Yadith kept turning around to look at their destination. Eventually she stopped rowing, and Gunhild kept them moving forward as Yadith continued to stare. What do you see? asked Gunhild. Buildings. It's a village. Oh, said Gunhild, understanding. It's the blacksmith making that noise. I think there's a church, said Yadith, squinting into the distance. How do you know? asked Gunhild. It looks like one, said Yadith. It's not big, but it looks different than a house. So what does that mean? asked Gunhild. Is that a good thing? It must be, said Yadith. I wonder who they are. Half an hour later they had reached the village. It wasn't right on the beach. The houses didn't start until the sand and beach grass had given way to packed dirt and small trees. Gunhild could see thatched houses, similar to her own house in Denmark, and a wooden church. She also saw two men in the distance who seemed to be walking toward them. Let's pull up here, suggested Gunhild. They ran aground, got out, and pushed the boat up the beach past the high tide line, and looked up to see two men getting nearer. Both had beards and long hair. They wore undyed woolen tunics and belts. Gunhild noticed they didn't have swords, and was silently grateful. Yala! Hwasenge! shouted one of the men as he approached. Yadith had been standing behind Gunhild, but when she heard his words, her demeanor changed. Her eyes grew wide with excitement, and she ran forward. Sprekath ye English? she asked. Is this Englaland? One of the men called back at her. Nay, this is Freisland. Von where cometh ye? Yadith was about to respond, but stopped. She hurried back to Gunhild and spoke in a low voice. Listen, you have to trust me, said Yadith. About what? said Gunhild. Shh, said Yadith. Don't speak. Don't speak at all. I'll explain later. Gunhild was about to ask why, but caught herself. Yadith had already turned back toward the men. Wits and English's focus, she yelled, and ran to them before Gunhild could catch up. Father Wilfrith sat at his table, his head bowed in prayer. He wore long black robes tied about the waist with a simple rope. The top of his head was shaved, leaving a ring of black hair flecked with grey. He rested his forehead on his clasped hands, eyes closed. He had been sitting for a while, but it was hard for him to concentrate. Every time he turned his mind toward the Lord and his works, some part of him pointed out that he was just trying to avoid what lay ahead of him. He raised his head and sighed. I've already prayed about it, he thought. Now I just have to do it. He stood and looked around his small one-room house. He thought of a few jobs he had meant to do, a letter he had planned to write, but he had to admit that he was stalling again, and instead got ready to leave his house and go and find Minhard. It was never easy talking to Minhard. As he opened his door and looked out past the church, he saw two men of the village, Oswig and Beoman, approaching, and they had other people with them, two girls from the look of it. 
Good afternoon, Oswick, he said as they approached. Father Wilfrith, nodded Oswick. We found these two on the beach. They're English. Father Wilfrith took a moment to look over Gunhild and Yareth, who stood before him. They were a bit ragged, though Gunhild's dress and the bronze pins that held it showed she wasn't poor. What were two English girls doing here? Good afternoon, Father, said Yareth. My goodness, said the priest. You are English. From Northumbria, I take it? Yes, Father, said Yareth. Gunhild stood silently, looking around at the strangers and the surrounding village. What, uh, what are your names? Wilfrith asked. I'm Yareth, and this is my sister Guthild, said Yareth. She doesn't speak, and she can hardly hear at all. You have to speak really slowly and gesture. Yes, yes, I see, said Wilfrith, intrigued. How did you... Wait, you should come inside. Oswick, Beoman, thank you for bringing them to me. Wilfrith turned back inside, happy to have an excuse to put off the errand he had been about to go on, but aware it would still be waiting for him. This was the village of Wenham, a small collection of farms on the north coast of Frisia. Father Wilfrith had come here eight years ago. It was well known that Charles, King of the Franks, valued English priests for their bravery and good Latin, and some of Wilfrith's brothers from the Abbey of St. Augustine had already gained positions in King Charles's expansive kingdom. Wilfrith had lived at the Abbey for twenty years, safe within its walls, ever since he took holy orders as a young man, but as he passed his fortieth year he found he longed for something more, or at least something different. Long ago he had wanted to be an instrument of God's glory, but what good was he stuck in an abbey? It was time for an adventure, he had decided, a holy quest to spread the good word. So his abbot had written to the bishop, and the bishop had written to another bishop, and soon Wilfrith had been on his way to Frisia, a place, according to his brothers, that was not terribly civilized and only barely Christian. Now here he was, the only priest for a hundred miles, and he had many souls in his care. He performed baptisms, marriages, and last rites, and said Mass on Sunday, but mostly he tried to guide his flock with wise counsel and words of encouragement. Some were more receptive than others. He had never been dissatisfied with his little village, but when the two English girls arrived at his door, he realized how much he missed home. Wilfrith brought them inside and provided them with a chair and a stool, the only ones he had, and gave them some bread, which they ate happily, while Yadith told him the story she had been busy inventing. My sister and I, we were fishing with my father. We lived near the mouth of the Humber, and a storm came in and blew us out to sea. My father was washed overboard. Yadith paused to look sad. From the priest's expression, she saw her story was working. She just hoped Gunhild didn't mess it up. Our mast broke, and when the storm was over, we didn't know where we were or which way to sail. Right, Guthild? she said, turning to her newly chosen sister. Waves, she said loudly. Big waves. She motioned with her hands, and Gunhild nodded. Yarth looked back at Wilfrith. You poor, poor children, he said, shaking his head. You are welcome here, and we will help you get home. The Lord is surely with you, and he has brought you here. Come, he said, standing up. We must find someone for you to stay with. I know just the man. Yadith and Gunhild took in everything around them as Father Wilfrith escorted them through the village. It was not like Gunhild's home, where the houses and farms were miles from any neighbors. Neither was it like Ripa, where the broad path to the pier was lined by merchants and craftsmen. Here there were thatched houses with outbuildings and gardens, mostly visible to each other, close enough to shout through a window at a neighbor. Beyond them were fields of grain and pastures of cattle. 
The small church with wooden walls and a shake roof stood near the center, and a large open patch of ground, worn with foot traffic over many years, served as the village green. Near one house she saw the blacksmith's forge that she had heard from the boat. Some people came out of the houses and began to ask Father Wilforth about them. As she listened, Yadith confirmed what she had realized when she met Oswig and Beelmond on the beach. English and Frisian were so close that she could understand everyone without any trouble, and they could understand her. When the villagers talked to Father Wilfrith and he answered back, she noticed he changed his speech a little, and used a few words she didn't recognize, but it was easy to pick up the meaning. She marveled at her luck. The mast breaking was a disaster, but at least they had found some kind of people whom they could talk to. They arrived at a house, and Wilfrith called out to the people inside. It was a bigger house than most others in the village, and nicer, too. Set back a bit from the village center, it set next to two fields separated by fences, a barn, and a garden. The wooden doorway was carved in twisting designs, which Yada thought seemed extravagant for a farming family. Three people emerged, and Wilfrith began introductions. This is Theobald, said the priest, gesturing to a man in his forties. This is Oslag, his wife, and Gregory, their son. Gregory looked to be seventeen or eighteen. He was tall and wiry, and his thick blonde hair was tied back to frame a kind face. "'You are welcome here,' Theobald told the girls. "'They are English and good Christians,' Wilfrith said, and began to retell Yada's story of their arrival here. "'This one doesn't hear or speak,' he said, indicating Gunhild. He turned to Gunhild. "'What is her name again?' he asked. "'Guthild,' said Yada. "'She understands a little if you speak loudly and clearly. She's always been like that.' Right, Guthild, she said, emphasizing the English name and nodding at Gunhild. Gunhild nodded back, still trying to figure out where this charade was leading. Come inside, girls, said Oslag. You must be freezing out here with no coats to keep you warm. And she led them into the house and got them some food and blankets. Theobald and Gregory stayed outside and continued talking to Wilfrith. Has Menhard changed his mind? asked Theobald, changing the subject. I haven't talked to him yet, said Wilfrith. I was going there. No one can deny his dog killed Yadolf's chicken. He owes compensation. Yadolf was Theobald's son-in-law. He had married Theobald's daughter Maria last year, and they lived in a smaller house with Yadolf's mother and sister. He says the chicken was wandering the village free from its pen, said Wilfrith apologetically. He says the dog can't be blamed. Theobald rolled his eyes and snorted at the absurdity of the idea. He'll pay or he'll fight, said Theobald, and Yadolf will be ready for him. No, no, you see, said Wilfrith, shaking his hands as if to wave away a bad idea. They mustn't fight. Why would Yadolf fight a duel over a chicken? It's not about the chicken, it's about the insult, said Theobald. Gregory stood to the side, arms crossed, taking in the conversation intently. The Lord said we must forgive those who do us harm, said Wilfrith. He commands us to be merciful. Theobald snorted again. I'm sorry, father, he said. I love the Lord like all good Christians, but he would never ask us to ignore a slap in the face. Wilfrith found himself in an awkward position. Theobald had it completely wrong, but he had just done him a huge favor by taking in the two girls. Did Wilfrith want to start an argument with him now? He looked for a way out. I understand, my friend, said the priest, but the bishop has said that duels are pagan. He shrugged apologetically, then thanked Theobald and left. Two generations ago, the Franks had crushed the Frisians in battle after battle and taken Frisia as their own. 
It took years to bring all of Frisia under control, but now King Charles was the undisputed ruler, and he had parceled the territory out to powerful counts and bishops who were able to collect taxes so long as they kept order. With the new ruler came a new religion, for King Charles was determined that his would be a Christian empire. The Frisians who lived in the village of Wynnum were the grandchildren of those who were baptized at Swordpoint. Some families had taken to the new ways happily, but some had never quite accepted them. The result was that the two most prominent families in the village had very different opinions of the Franks. Theobald was loyal to his king, though he had never met him, and loyal to the count, Leodegar, who ruled here. He had given his children Christian names, Maria and Gregory. He was determined that Gregory would some day fight for the count, and that his future grandchildren would learn to read and write in Latin. There was another family equal in stature to Theobald's, and the two were old rivals. Gerhard owned an impressive farm and a herd of healthy cattle. Like Theobald, he had servants to work his fields. Like Theobald, his house was large and well-built. Gerhard's grandfather had been the village Guthi and had fought with King Redbod against the Franks. There was no village Guthi anymore, but Gerhard, his sister, and their cousin remembered the honor their family had once enjoyed. Fifteen years ago, when the Saxon warlord Widukind had led a revolt against the Franks, Gerhard and his brother-in-law had disappeared from the village for a year. It was an open secret that they had been fighting alongside the Saxons. Gerhard's brother-in-law had not returned, and Gerhard, Minhard, and their relatives continued to bear a grudge against the Franks and anyone allied with them, including the hapless English priest who had been sent to tend their village. Father Wilfrith approached Minhard, who sat on a stump near his fields. Minhard's dog lay by him, and it sat up when he saw Wilfrith. Minhard didn't look up. He was carving a stick of wood. Wilfrith couldn't tell what it might be useful for, and he continued even when the priest stopped in front of him. "'I think Yadolf would accept an apology,' said Wilfrith. "'It's really not about the chicken, you see. Maybe if you would simply say you were in the wrong, you wouldn't even need to pay him.' Minhard continued carving, then looked up at Wilfrith. Wilfrith waited expectantly. No, said Minhard, and he went back to his carving. But why? Theobald and his family strut around here like they own the village, said Minhard. He paused. They don't own me. Pride is a grave sin, said Wilfrith. He meant it to sound stern, but wasn't very convincing. Minhard had a way of making him uneasy. He was a bit of a loner, and unmarried at twenty-six. He spent all of his time with his dog and might go for days without talking to anyone. When he did, though, he stuck to his family, Gerhard and the others. Minhard continued carving without looking up. There's all sorts of sins, I suppose, he said. Lying is, I know. And that chicken was running around the village, like I said. Redgar here, he nodded toward the dog, didn't break any fence. He paused. So I guess that's that. Wilfrith stood, looking down at Minhard. "'I will pray for God to change your heart,' he said, though it came out a bit more terse than he had intended. "'Good luck, father,' said Minhard. Wilfrith couldn't see, but was certain that Minhard smirked as he said it. Back at Theobald's house, Yadith and Gunhild were getting warm. They both were sipping broth wrapped in blankets. Oslag sat with them talking to Yadith. Maria sat with her one-year-old child, 
and two other children, a niece and nephew of Oslag's, had come to see the new arrivals, too. A lazy dog was curled in a corner of the house, snoring occasionally. Yadith worked at spinning a convincing story, while Gunhild sat in silence. She understood almost nothing. The conversation grated on her. She hated not understanding, and having to trust Yadith and whatever her plan was. She was grateful for the soup and the fire, but hoped they could get going again soon. Hours passed before Maria's child got cranky and Oslag ran out of questions. She had taken an instant liking to the girls and told them to call her Osa, as the rest of the family did. She made up extra beds on the floor for Yadith and Gunhild, and then directed them to the latrine outside. Yadith led Gunhild to find it, and after walking at least fifty yards in silence, Yadith looked around and whispered to Gunhild in Danish, "'Pretty good so far, I'd say.' "'What's going on?' whispered Gunhild. "'Why can't I talk?' First off, this way we don't have to worry about keeping our stories straight. Second, this way they don't know you're Danish. Why would that matter? asked Gunhild. What if the Danes have attacked here too? What if the last time they heard Danish it was a band of warriors attacking the village? Gunhild stood in hurt silence. Not only that, when I saw that church I knew we would be better off if both of us were Christian. And so now you're English, and Christian, and my sister easier for everyone. When they returned from the latrine, they lay down on the furs and blankets. Gunhild had almost forgotten what a real bed felt like, and now, in a warm house with hot food in her belly, she was tired beyond belief. She would have loved to relax and enjoy herself after weeks at sea, but it was hard not to feel bitter. She had never had to hide who she was before. She had never been a stranger. On the other side of the village, Gerhard and his family sat around the hearth. They had eaten and now sat in silence. Gerhard's wife, Hilke, sewed by the light of an oil lamp. She was his second wife. His first had died years ago from a sickness, leaving him with two sons, Avin and Seward. He looked at one and then the other and admired the men they had grown to be. Avin was an excellent farmer, and now he ran the farm more than his father did. He should marry thought Gerhard, and Seward, almost twenty now, fine strong sons, then his own children with Hilke, his daughter Luva, and his little son Helmig, who sat on the floor with a straw doll in each hand, enacting some scene between them. Hilke turned to her niece, Gislind, for help threading a needle. Hilke's eyes weren't as sharp as they used to be, and Gislinda had been like a daughter since she had come to live with them. Her own father, Hilke's brother, had gone to Saxony with Gerhard, but never came back. Gerhard looked at her, almost sixteen, and his throat caught as he wished her father, his best friend, could have seen her growing up. By all expectations, Gerhard should be content. His farm was prosperous, he had hired workers, he never went hungry, he even had some silver coins in a box should he ever need them. And yet there was a sense of foreboding about the hearth that night. Minhard had come to dinner and informed them about his conversation with the priest. If Yadolf pursued the case, more likely it would be that pompous troublemaker Theobald, then there could be a duel, and while Gerhard would never back down from a fight, nor expect his cousin Minhard to, he knew it wouldn't end well. When he had gone to fight the Franks during the uprising, that was a real battle, two lines of warriors across a field from each other. He remembered that when he stood shoulder to shoulder with his friends, staring down the Frankish troops on horseback, he didn't feel an ounce of fear. His life was in the hands of God, or the gods, or whichever happened to be watching. 
whatever the result of the battle, he would live or die, and then it would be over. But here in the village, one fight would lead to another, one family would turn against another, other families would get drawn in. It might never end. A feud could destroy the village, but he couldn't stop it any more than he could prevent a rainstorm. His only hope was that it would blow over. Father, Seward said, I've been wanting to ask you. The harvest is over now. The cattle have fodder for the winter. The pigs are slaughtered and salted. But the weather isn't too bad yet. Yes, said Gerhard, leaning in. I'd like to go to Dorstad, said Seward. Gerhard smiled. Of course you would, he said. And you wouldn't mind taking a coin or two with you, I bet. You're looking for a few days of drinking, maybe some gambling, some wrestling matches with the locals. He looked up at Hilka and winked. You might even meet some girls. What do you say, Hilka? Should he go? Maybe send Avin to keep him out of trouble, Hilka said. Seward frowned. Actually, he said, that's not quite what I was thinking. Do you remember when Count Leodegar passed through last spring? Gerhard's face darkened. He had no love for Leodegar, the Frankish count who had been given land reaching from Dorstad to the northern coast, including this village. Remember when he was talking to you, and he saw me and said I would make a fine warrior some day? Idle words, grumbled Gerhard. He was just playing the gracious aristocrat. That Frank doesn't think of us as anything more than peasants. Gerhard looked up at Seward and realized the effect his words had had. He tried to reverse course. Of course you would make an excellent warrior, Seward, he said. It's in your blood. You're strong and brave. But what does that have to do with Leodegar? He needs soldiers, and you taught me how to swing a sword as well as I can push a plow. Gerhard sighed. He's not your lord. Some day Charles will die. The Franks will crumble. Frisia will be free. That's why I taught you how to swing a sword. Seward looked hurt. Remember when those traitors came through before the harvest? He asked. They said King Charles needed men to fight in Spain and Italy. I want to go with them. Gerhard pursed his lips and breathed deeply. You want to fight for Charles? I want to fight for someone, said Seward. He's our king, right? And he wants to fight the Saracens to the south. He wants God's true church to rule. Seward's words trailed off as he looked at his father's stern face. I'm sorry, he said eventually. No, son, said Gerhard. I'm sorry. Of course you want to be a soldier. The blood of princes runs through you. He stood up, and so did Seward. Gerhard took his son by the shoulders. It's just... I wish it weren't for the Franks. He clapped Seward on the shoulder, and Seward nodded in understanding. They sat back down. Hilke had boiled some water, and now she mixed in some honey and handed it to her stepson. She looked across the hearth at Gerhard and smiled at him sympathetically. He gave a worried smile in return, then stood to take a walk before bed. <laughs>